Code switching is an integral part of being an immigrant's kid. Depending on who I'm talking to at any given time, I may identify as being Taiwanese-American, Chinese-American, or simply Asian. When I return to my parents' native country, I mostly fit in, as long as I keep my mouth shut. But inevitably, the fate of my blue jeans, a scuff in an unpolished boot, or a hole in a sock gives me away as being from somewhere else. The clothes we wear are markers of our identity and belonging, and to a degree, it's through a consideration of our clothes that we're able to traverse borders and geographies. When I ascend the stairs into a Buddhist fortress in Bhutan, I take my cues from my guides and cover my bare arms with a sweater. Our clothes tell others who we are and where we're from. They place our identity on display. Our identity is always carried within us, but sometimes we wear it on the outside, for intentional reasons. Who she was was somebody that was very courageous and larger than life and, you know, traveled the world with one desire, which is to to be fully seen as a fabulous human being. Anita Yu Ali is remembering the red chador, a specific garment she created a modern take on a traditional Muslim prayer outfit. Anita is an interdisciplinary performance artist and a self-described global agitator. But the red chador isn't just a garment, it's a persona. She's a persona that Anita embodies when she wears her. And the red chador had a global impact. And unfortunately that was cut short with the disappearance of the original garment in Tel Aviv. This is The Blue Suit, a podcast about the commonplace things that touch our lives and the uncommon people that transform them into something remarkable. I'm Shinyi Pai. Today, The Red Chador. The Red Chador came out of an invitation to exhibit artwork in Paris. Anita was living in Cambodia at the time, a former French colony. The news headlines dominating the front pages sensationalized ISIS, the beheadings of foreign journalists, and the Charlie Hebdo shootings by two Muslim brothers. And so as I looked at France's very tense relationship with former Muslim-majority colonies, and their burqa ban in France, and like France's relationship to Cambodia, all of that went into me conceiving that whatever I do in France, I have to be covered. I have to speak to that very racist law, the racist policies that were veiled as if it's about liberty, when in fact it's about Islamophobia. She imagined a garment that could put Muslim identity on display. I wanted someone who was going to have a sense of presence. A garment that she could wear to confront fear and fear-mongering. 
and I wanted a lot of fabric. I wanted meters and meters of textile to really give it this regal feel. So it's almost like a amazing gown that an Orthodox Muslim woman could wear if she was going to, you know, a debutante ball, a gown that was something she could wear to a prom or a gala. The result was the red shador, a head-to-toe covering, a veil to see out of, not into, covered in red sparkling sequins reminiscent of Dorothy's ruby slippers. And when the light hits it in a certain way, it's just bright and beautiful and you are mesmerized looking at it. The red shador is a one-of-a-kind garment. But for much of her life, Anita wore other garments to express her Muslim identity. Growing up in a Cambodian family in Chicago, she spent a lot of time at the mosque. And for us, we always wore these prayer garments called the telekung, which are traditionally Malaysian. I'm a quarter Malay. They had two versions of the telekung an everyday two-piece version that was all white, a long skirt paired with another piece of fabric to cover the head, torso, and arms. These prayer garments were often handmade by family members. Usually handmade by your mom or your grandma, um, and you would wear them for prayers, for like five times a day for all your prayers. And then you had a sort of fancier set that had embroidery. This religious regalia and markers of ritual can be seen in Anita's art. She dons the red shador to embody her Islamic identity, which is just one of her many selves. It's in wearing the red shador that her identity as an artist is also activated. As a kid, Anita knew she wanted to be an artist, even as early as the first grade. I think my dad came home with some paper placemat coloring contest for McDonald's. And I entered it and I won a pair of knee-high adult McDonald logoed socks. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, if you're familiar with knee-high like soccer socks, they're yeah. really like tough and durable. Yeah. The McDonald's socks were of that quality. <laughs> and so I thought, oh man, this is it. This is so, like, were the socks so special that you wouldn't, you couldn't even bring yourself to wear them and they were like a trophy? No, my dad wore the socks and they lasted forever. Eventually, Anita went on to pursue her childhood dreams. She studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And it's around that community where I first met Anita through colleagues. Before she enrolled at the school, Anita's creative practice was rooted deeply in slam poetry. Witnessing her performances, I saw an impassioned performer deliver highly stylized poetic recitations. She explored her Asian American identity unapologetically, but that wasn't always received well by her academic and creative community. It was a real, um, how should I state it, this, this snobby attitude towards work that was too rooted in storytelling that was too obvious, that was almost too people of color-ish. I mean, there's no other way to say it. It was like, if you said anything that was about 
overtly being Cambodian American, Asian American, it was like too difficult for your crit panel to get into it because it was too specific. And this is, I would realize later, is really the foundations of a problematic art world that is rooted in whiteness and elitism. The racism and discrimination Anita experienced wasn't just under the surface. Even her master's thesis wasn't spared. It was a gallery installation. She filled a white wall with white vinyl lettering, words taken from anti-Muslim hate crime reports. Anita's installation was defaced during its first week on display. The response at school was worse than silence. My fellow classmates were saying things like, well, this is this is what Anita gets for doing this kind of work and working with that kind of language. Anita began to reimagine her art practice differently. What would it look like if she took her art outside the elite art world? What if other responses mattered more? Anita had been examining her roots in text and spoken word for some time. Language had been her chosen artistic expression for so long. This is something that I understood as a writer and daughter of immigrants. Mastery of the English language creates a sense of being able to fit in. Outside of my parents' accents, fragmented grammar, or questionable use of pronouns. The command of language can disarm another person, even if that person's initial assumption and expectation is that I'll speak imperfect English. As part of her poetry performance collective, I Was Born With Two Tongues, Anita performed in festivals, universities, and art galleries. She took her stories about being an Asian-American woman in America all over the world before she was even yet 30 years old, but she encountered an unexpected challenge. I would perform in this really impassioned way, these powerful, what I thought were powerful words, telling a very specific story, which is that of an Asian American and what she might be going through in that contemporary moment. And people would applaud, whether it was in New Delhi or Chiang Mai or Lung Prabang or Vietnam, they would applaud and they would come up to me later and be like, wow, that was like really powerful. I just really felt your, your anger. But what, what were you saying? I don't understand. What, what is there to be angry about? Her artistic medium, her mastery and manipulation of the English language wasn't accessible to those who were non-English speakers. Ultimately, English limited her expression. It failed in translation. And that was kind of devastating for me, you know, to be in all these spaces and then realize um, this, this American-centered uh, way of being and doing that could not um, transcend these borders. I started to realize that my work needed to shift. But this opened the door to something else, a new way of thinking about her art. As she watched performance artists on stage connect to their audiences and inspire deeper reactions, 
she realized that other creative tools besides language were available to her. Stories could be expressed in gesture, movement, archetype, and even in the subtleties of dress. She could use the elements of space and time and performance to grab the attention of the audience, to demand their interest in a way that she couldn't before on stage with spoken word. She would move beyond using her voice to be seen. Anita shifted into nonverbal performance art, studying various dance and movement practices. But her roots in storytelling and her commitment to putting identity at the center of her work remained central to her art-making commitments. When Anita performed wearing the red chador in Paris, people were receptive. She walked through the city streets, placing her body out in the public sphere where people could react to her glimmering figure. She strolled past the Eiffel Tower. She paused on street corners and crossed paths with protesters calling for conflict resolution in Yemen. Bystanders stepped aside and watched her pass. Or they would reciprocate her heart shake. Which is a gesture I do where I put my two hands up to my heart and I bow a bit. When I receive that, I know that they do see me and that they're acknowledging this moment of exchange. And I think that, that that's enough. After living in Cambodia for several years, Anita moved back to the U.S. to take a teaching job on the East Coast. A lot had changed. Trump's following was growing. The Black Lives Matter movement was starting to gain traction, especially after Ferguson. It felt like time to bring out the Red Shador again. The reception there was different. When I presented the Red Shador in America for the very first time, I don't think I was as prepared to receive the kind of profanity that was tossed at me and the fear. Anita would walk as the Red Shador on the streets in Hartford, Connecticut. Students would yell out profanity or start shaking. You would physically see students like having some kind of anxiety attack. And this is a woman that's dressed in red sequins. She didn't realize that her audiences had been a generation of young people who had grown up with 9-11 and been subject to strong anti-Islamic bias in the media. Anita also performed in Washington, D.C. The reactions to the work in the Smithsonian space was really profound for me. At the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center, she was surrounded by a sea of 99 American flags while standing on a raised platform in the Red Shador. There was a man who was just dressed in like a pink polo shirt and a pair of pants and had a backpack on. He was a very tall, big built man. And he, he stuck around for a long time, just kind of going back and forth and looking. And then the director of the Smithsonian Asian Pacific uh, American Center was there and approached the man. And the man ended up being like a plainclothes Marine officer who said to her, this is so powerful. Thank you very much for putting this on. This is why I put on the uniform and I have been stationed um, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And it's so important 
that we celebrate what America is about, this kind of diversity. I mean, it's very, you know, very cliche answer, but it really touched, touched my heart. Anita got reactions from people who saw an unapologetic Muslim identity in her performance. They responded with anger, fear, attacks of profanity, while others reacted out of gratitude and respect. And some people just stared, curious at a person so flamboyantly on display, asking to be seen. It's such an intimate experience because many people, they'll whisper things into my ear or they'll start having a conversation with me, even though she's completely silent and not talking. They want to engage. Because your identity is very much on display when you're wearing this chador. How did being more visibly Muslim impact you or your experience? I do so much work with kind of building myself up to the moment of performance that I always have a generosity of spirit. There is a much more generous, compassionate person underneath that veil. Um, So when bad things happen while in character, I really try very hard to not let that bother me, to go look for the moments that are friendlier that are going to give me more energy and more fuel to keep going. There's a lot of forgiveness that this persona allows me to have that I don't think I I necessarily have as Anita Ueli. <laughs> the persona of the Red Shador is a part of Anita that those close to her may not always get to see. As a woman who outwardly presents as being Asian-American, she's been subject to the stereotypes that go along with being an Asian woman. And since she's vocal about fighting back against the model minority myth, she often comes across as an angry minority. Being the Red Shador is different. It brings out a playfulness in me and and a joyfulness that isn't always articulated when you do severely political work. But of course, the Red Shador is just one part out of many. Anita is Muslim. She was also exposed culturally to Buddhism as a young person. She's a child of refugees who grew up in the Windy City, a writer, a teacher, a mother, a global agitator. Though the Red Shador puts one identity on display, the others are still there. All the identities are always being performed. It's just that sometimes you pick up on certain things that you want to highlight to everyone else. Even though a persona like the Red Chador is projecting a more Islamic presentation, the body that is occupying that garment is very much a hybrid person. The Red Chador provided Anita with a powerful vehicle for being seen while embodying her various identities. But the Red Chador didn't endure. Anita was traveling through Tel Aviv, Israel, when the Red Shador went missing. She was returning home after giving a talk in Ramallah, Palestine. I called that day with the airlines, and they said to call in two days. I called in two days. There was nothing, two weeks, nothing, two months, nothing. And when they did do the computer search, they said that, oh, your bags never left Tel Aviv. 
the Red Chador had been her companion throughout many years of performance. It was a very, very hard loss. These aren't just costumes. You know, these are extensions of my identity, of my ancestry, and ultimately of stories that I'm helping to tell and sharing with the world. So you you just can't replace that. Now, on the other hand, I do have this vivid imagination, and I do think that maybe there was a Tel Aviv immigration officer who's like super queer and just like opened up my luggage and noticed that, oh, this thing would work really well in a nightclub or some pageant he's about to enter. So I think like he is celebrating his closeted queerness with my garment. After two years, the Red Chador was reborn as a rainbow. Anita remade the Chador in red, orange, blue, purple, pink, green, and gold. She queered the Chador to incorporate pride into the work, to reincarnate the Red Chador with an entourage, a circle of protection for the future, a multitude of identities, each their own mirror, to bear witness to her joy and resilience. You can learn more about Anita and see photos of the Red Chador. Just go to our show notes. Next week's object is Epiphyllum oxypetaluma, aka the Night Blooming Sirius. Do you have a special object that you hold close? Share it with us on Instagram. Tag at KOW and use the hashtag BlueSuitPod. The Blue Suit is produced by KOW in Seattle. Our host, writer, and creator is me, Shin Yi Pai. Whitney Henry Lester produced this episode. Jim Gates is our editor. Tomo Nakayama wrote our theme music. Our production team includes Michaela Giannotti, Tio Popescu, Hans Twite, Melissa Takai, and Brendan Sweeney. Special thanks to the Windrose Fund for their financial support. If you like this podcast, KUOW has a lot more great audio for you. Search KUOW in your podcast app and see what piques your interest. Thanks for listening. when information continues to come at us faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.